this. Well, good morning, New Life. I'm excited to be with you guys this morning. I want to tell you, uh, start with a, a brief story to kind of set up where we're going in our time together this morning. Uh, a few years ago, before my family and I moved to Asheville, I had one of the strangest airport experiences of my life. I was going through security, and I got my, my bag through, and right as my bag was kind of coming out, something happened. And, you know, normally you kind of go through security, and it's just kind of boring and annoying and, and, and all that, but this time was a little different. I started seeing TSA agents, like, pop up, and, and, and a lot of them, I started hearing people shouting in a different language, and then they started running, like, over behind me, and I was thinking, like, did, did I set something off, or did somebody try to get a weapon through, or, like, what, what's going on? And, and even, I was a little bit more unnerved when the supervisor, she starts yelling at them to come back, and, like, and she clearly doesn't know what's happening, so something's going down, and not even all the TSA people know what it is. And, and so finally, I looked back over, and I saw, once I grabbed my stuff, I saw, like, a crowd of people, and, and, and they were kind of, this is like, small swarm, and they're all kind of gathered around this one person, and I was like, I mean, it's, it's, is somebody, like, do they have a gun? Do they have, and then I realized, oh, people aren't scared. They're, they're coming around them. They, they want to see someone, so it wasn't, it wasn't like an emergency or crisis. It was a celebrity. And so I'm starting to think, like, is, is, that, is that the president? Like, what's, you know, this isn't is a U.S. airport, so I'm kind of not, like, like thinking that maybe, it, maybe it's our president, maybe it's LeBron James or somebody like that, but then there was not, like, one head sticking up above all the others, so it's, it, it, it's not him. But, 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 but what is it? I, cu- I couldn't see who, who it was, but I thought, this is going to be good. So I, I grabbed my stuff, I went over, and, and so that, that was my, my first thought, but then I started realizing all the people around them were like dressed a certain way and they were speaking a certain language and, and I was like oh wait this so, so my next thought was like is this like Ronaldo or like some you know like some of you don't know who he is I'm not a soccer person okay I don't know much about soccer but um, okay Pele okay does that resonate with some okay so, so somebody like that um, so I, I thought maybe is that maybe it's like a foreign president or something. I didn't know what was going on. So so finally I close enough and, and I can and I can see who it is and finally the TSA agents are starting to go back to their posts and it starts to dissipate. And it's telling the screens, this this is this is who I saw. And I did, by the way, I did I did ask if it was okay to, to uh, take this picture. Um, and so it, when, when, I, when I saw him, I, I didn't have any idea who he was, but, but I did what I think probably most of you would do, which is like, I don't know who this is, but a lot of people are excited, so what am I going to do? Next picture. I'm going to get my picture with him, okay? So, um, and, and this was not planned, but Chris is right. I'm a Florida Gator fan. This was <laughs> just the shirt I was wearing that day. Um, now, what I didn't realize at the time and what you may not realize right now is the significance of this man. Does anybody, anybody here know who he is? Nobody, nobody knows who he is? Okay. I, I, have, I asked friends in the Middle East. I started asking around. I had no idea the significance of who I was with. You know who he is? Are you ready for this? I, I still don't know. I don't know who he is, okay? So I... I <laughs> I have asked friends, I've got, like, nobody knows who he is, but clearly there was a subset of people, and some of them who worked with TSA, who really, really knew who this person was, okay? But I wanted to at least get a picture just in case, okay? Um, and, and now I've used it, I can delete it from my, my, my phone. Um, but, 
but, but I know this. For some of the people in the airport that day, they knew who this person was, and it was a once-in-a-lifetime event, the way that they responded. Now, that's kind of anticlimactic. It's like, I don't even know who he is now. But, but you probably have a better story than that. You probably have met somebody truly famous, at least famous in, in our world. And, and, some, and maybe, maybe you shook hands with a U.S. president at one point. Maybe you got a selfie with the Pope. Maybe you did le- meet LeBron James or something like that. Uh, we, can, we can look at your uh, Instagram feed later. Okay. But, but one way or another, maybe it was good, maybe it was bad, you probably have a story of somebody really famous who you met and it left quite an impression. Well, that, that's what happened that day at the airport, and, and I promise you, no matter who you met, no matter what that was like, and it, no matter how much the atmosphere changed, I promise you, it was nothing like the story that we're going to look at today. See, when Jesus came to town, there would have been people leaving their posts, they would have been running to get a selfie, there would have been a lot of people, like in this airport, who maybe didn't have any idea what it was, but they were like, I want to go see what this is, because obviously a lot of people think this is a big deal, but it would have, for every single person, had a tremendous impact, and, and they may not have known it, they might not have even known what the big deal was, but it had eternal significance for them, and it does right down in our lives today. So we're going to get into this story that is familiar to some of us, maybe not to all of us, but we're going to start with the backstory of what was going on when this famous rabbi named Jesus comes into town and what difference that made for them then and what difference it makes for us today. So here's a little, uh, a little roadmap just to kind of think through today where we're going. Uh, we're we're going to start with the backstory. I made that zero so we wouldn't have five points and you wouldn't get worried that your pot roast is going to uh, burn or something like that. Uh, we, we will spend a good bit of time at the front end with kind of the backstory, the context, what's going on, and then the king's entrance, and then we'll move pretty quickly through the last piece is the king for the world, the king's paradox, and the king's purpose. That's kind of what we're doing uh, today. I was going to make these all P's, but then I would have had to beat myself up, so we, uh, we, we weren't going to go with the alliteration today. So if you're just joining us, the last several weeks, uh, Chris, our lead pastor, he's been walking us through the letter of First John. So John, who was one of the apostles, he walked around with Jesus, experienced life with him, he wrote three letters. We know them as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And then he wrote the Gospel of John, which is his account of, of being with Jesus and all that happened to Jesus' life uh, when he was with them. And then he wrote the book of Revelation. So today we're going to look not at the, the letter of 1st John, but at John's Gospel. So if you have a Bible with you, if you would uh, turn to John chapter 12. That's in the New Testament. So just after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other three Gospels, and right before the book of Acts. So the Gospel of John, and, and we're, it's, it's going to be a little different today. So we're not going through a letter that's packed with all this instruction and, and, and all these explanations. He's just telling a story. He's just telling, here's what happened, and, th- and this is where we get. And we're jumping into the story in chapter 12. So obviously there's a lot that's been happening. You may know this, you may have heard this before, that John wrote his Gospel, his account of the life of Jesus, around seven signs. So it wasn't that Jesus just did seven miracles, but he did many more than that. But there were seven signs, which were, were miracles, but they kind of pointed to something bigger and greater. And, and this is what John features in his gospel. So there's seven signs. The first one of which you might remember is when his, his mom, Mary, asked him to, to do something about the fact that they ran out of wine at this big wedding feast. And, and, and so that was the first sign in the wedding in Cana. The seventh sign, 
mind. Uh, Chris recapped for us a little bit uh, a few weeks ago the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So that has just happened before where we are today in, in chapter 12. So that's what the first half of John is dedicated to. And then the rest of John, it's, it only covers from this point in chapter 12 forward one week. It's only one week of time, but of course, it's the most important week of the most important person who's ever lived. And so that's why he focuses on it so much. Now, we just kind of skimmed over the fact that Jesus raised someone from the dead. If you haven't heard that story, you should read that in John 11. But after, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, many people believed in Jesus at that point. Now, it's no surprise, right? If you believe, uh, if, if you don't believe in Jesus, after he raises someone from the dead, if you saw that, I don't know what else to tell you. I mean, he raised a guy from the dead. And, and so that's what happens for a lot of people. They start to believe in him. But others, John tells us, others, their response was to go and tell the Pharisees what had happened. Now, up to this point, John has shared multiple times about this building tension between Jesus and the Pharisees, and it's about to hit a boiling point, a climax in the second half of John's gospel as we enter Jesus's final week. So a quick background on the Pharisees. Who were they? We see them pop up so much in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and, and why we see them pop up so often, often is they were this really influential group. They, they were a lay movement of religious Jews. Lay movement meaning they weren't like professionals, like, like uh, priests in the temple, but, but they, were, they were more kind of like middle class, but they were super, super highly respected because they took the law of God so seriously. That's, in, that's the sense in which they were really religious. They were experts in the Old Testament law, and not only were they experts in what the law said, they filled in all the gaps. So if a law didn't speak directly to a specific situation, they would kind of expand the law or come up with their own interpretation to say, this is what you do, this is what you don't do in any situation authoritatively. And they spoke with a lot of authority. So they weren't, um, they, they weren't, they weren't um, really particularly political, but they were political in the sense that they had a lot of power and authority and influence. And so whatever they had to do to stay in power with the Roman Empire really being in charge, they, they would do that. So that's, that's kind of the sense in which they engaged politically. So they are not excited when they start to hear about this miracle-working rabbi who's, who's making waves throughout Israel, and especially because his teaching, his interpretation of the Old Testament didn't always agree with theirs. And so they weren't super excited about that. And this tension starts to grow all throughout the book of John up to this point where Jesus raises this man from the dead, and then tons of people start following him and believing in him, and that was kind of the last straw for the Pharisees. So John tells us at the end of chapter 11, he says this, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So we get a window into what are their priorities? What are their fears? What, what is it that, that is their motivation? Well, John tells us that they pulled together uh, themselves and then kind of some other religious leaders, and it's kind of like this religious mafia situation. They put a hit out on Jesus. They plan to kill him. And so let's pick up with that at the end of chapter 11, setting the stage uh, for, for where we're going, and we'll see what John tells us. Chapter 11, verse 53. John says this, So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So this was a direct response about hearing about Lazarus and the people who were believing in Jesus. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, 
But he went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now, Bethany was where Jesus had raised Lazarus. That was about two miles from Jerusalem, so not far at all. And then this region of Ephraim was about 12 to 15 miles away from there. So Jesus, uh, he, he goes with his disciples and stays there, but everyone in that whole region and beyond is going to Jerusalem. They're about to head there. Why? Because Passover was about to happen. Well, so what? Well, that was the biggest date on their calendar. That, that was the celebration and remembrance of God delivering them years ago, centuries ago, from slavery in Egypt under Moses. It was their biggest holiday, their biggest festival, and tons of people came to town for Passover. Now, Jerusalem was estimated to have about 100,000 people at this time, residents. So it was close to the size of Asheville, but for Passover, it would be 10 times that. Maybe up to a million people would be in town. So you get everyone in Asheville to go downtown all at the same time, and then you dump about nine football stadiums full of people, full of tourists, okay, down into downtown, and then that's basically Passover. That's what it was like. You'd have everyone coming for Christmas at Biltmore, all the leaf tourists, everybody coming on summer vacation, all together, all at the same time, all at once, that's Passover. Now, people had come from all over, John tells us, in verse 55. Let's look at what he says. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. So that's what everyone is wondering. Is, is, is this guy Jesus, we, one we've been hearing about, is he going to show up? Is he going to come? And, and, and remember, the chapter and verse numbers were, were added later, so in, don't, don't read in a, a big break or gap into chapter 12. John just goes right into this next scene. Okay, John 12, chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover. So there's our time marker, okay? Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, just in case you're wondering, wait, that Lazarus? Yes, that Lazarus. He's just hanging out with Jesus at the dinner party. He had died. He was in the tomb for four days. He was raised, and then he, he goes to dinner, okay? So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha, so Lazarus had two sisters. You remember Mary and Martha. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him, Jesus, at the table. So this is crazy. Let's get this into our heads. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in the town of Bethany, two miles from Jerusalem. That's not even from here to UNCA, not even that far. When the religious elites are after Jesus, he goes with his disciples and he hides out in Ephraim. So that's about a dozen miles away. So from here to Sandy Mush, okay, about that far. But the word is spreading about him like wildfire. Well, why? Because Lazarus was dead for four days, and he was raised from the dead. So not only did people see that, tell others about it, rumors are spreading, words circulating, you could also go and see Lazarus. You could go talk to him, be like, man, were you dead? Yeah, man, I was dead. I wrapped his body. I 
I put him in the tomb. Okay, the, all these eyewitnesses and the eyewitness, Lazarus himself, was there. So word is spreading. And six days before this massive Jewish festival, the, 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 the biggest on the calendar, Jesus heads back to, Beth, to Bethany, not even from here to UNCA, and they throw this dinner in his honor. Now, we could spend the whole morning on this next part, but let's just read it quickly as John kind of sets up what, what's next with this contrast between Mary and Judas. Okay, verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. Now, fun, fun fact, this oil is also called spike nard. So if you're looking for a, a good nickname for yourself, this, this could be one. Um, it, this, this ointment, it was a super expensive ointment that would have been imported from North India, the mountains of North India. So even at this time, very rare, very expensive. And, and interestingly, I think it's really significant that this oil was like a rich rose red. I, I think this, this might be kind of foreshadowing a little bit about what's coming. And it was very sweetly scented. So, so she, uh, it, it says, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Very unique, very interesting what, what is happening here. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So an extravagant act of devotion, of worship from Mary. Now John contrasts that with verse 4, Judas. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, one denarius was about a day's wage for the average person. So this is like a full year's salary, pretty much. So it was, it was indeed extravagant. But we, we see John tells us Judas' motives. Uh, he said this not because he cared about the poor. John would have known. He, he hung out with him for three years. But because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag... He used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, rebuking Judas, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Now again, your Bible might have a break here, but, but keep reading. We're still at this dinner. Verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So what's happening? Pe people heard Jesus, and they heard Lazarus, that they were there, they came to see them, and they're believing in Jesus, exactly what the Pharisees were worried was going to happen. This is what they were afraid of. And it's diminishing their power, their position, their authority, and it's about to ruin their Passover. Okay? Jesus... In, in, in our terms, Jesus was about to ruin Christmas, okay? So if Lazarus is the number one piece of evidence, he's causing all these people to follow Jesus, what do you do? You destroy, destroy the evidence, right? So his life, as well as Jesus, is in danger now. He's, he's in danger of dying a second time, okay? So Lazarus is in danger, Jesus is in danger. With that context, with that backstory, now we come to the part of the story that we're familiar with, and what's the deal with Palm Sunday? Okay. Are there any? Oh, there's a few. There's a few real Christians here. They brought their. Okay. Good job. All right. Anybody else? No. You guys came unprepared this morning. Okay. That's okay. We'll we'll move into verse 12. The next day, so that would be Sunday, uh, at the day after this dinner. The large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So remember, the feast is Passover, biggest date on their calendar. Jews from all over. 
And the city of Jerusalem, it, it's set up on a hill. So it's on a hill, it's got walls all around, and then gates into the city, okay? And, and then there, all around there's countryside. So the city is, is not huge, and so it's jam-packed with people. They're, they're, it's a festive environment. There's thousands of people filling the city. They're buying, selling, trading, ha having family reunions, joking around, camping outside the walls, crashing with relatives who live there. So I, I just talked to Virginia. She's having friend, uh, family for Easter. They're already getting ready for it, right? Like they're already preparing. Passover is, is, is 10 times that, okay? So they're all getting ready for this. But it wasn't just crowds of people. It was a week that was a week filled with hope. It's a week filled with hope because they would remember, they would, they would celebrate and recall their deliverance from slavery in Egypt centuries ago, and, but now they're looking for that to happen again, this time not from Egypt, but from Rome, the Roman Empire that, that was oppressing them and in charge of that region. So they, they all knew the promises of God from the Old Testament, that God had promised a Savior, a Messiah, a Deliverer, and they've been looking and waiting and hoping for centuries that, that these stories would be passed on at Passover dinner from, from the grandfather down to the grandkids, and then those kids would grow up, and, and they would be grandparents, and they would tell their grandkids, and on and on through the years, through the centuries, and they, they would talk about this hope. But this year, this year there was something different. There's a freshness to their hope. Everyone's talking about this miracle working teacher, this prophet, this rabbi who's, who's coming from the north, and people are saying that he raised a man from the dead just down the road in Bethany, and I know somebody who was there, and they saw it, and they told me about it. Could this be the guy? Could this finally be the Messiah that we've been waiting centuries for? Well, word was spreading about Jesus like crazy, and they were wondering, would he come? Would, would he be there? So he's like, I've, I've, I've heard of this guy. He, he does miracles. I heard him teach. It was amazing when he taught. When, when he taught. A, a lot of people are saying he's the Messiah. I really think he's the Messiah. Hey, hey, my brother, you didn't hear this from me. He's a Pharisee, but he said they're going to arrest him, and if he comes to him, they're going to kill him. And they've told us if we see him, we, we have to tell him where, where he is. Do you think he'll actually come? So all this conversation, all this tension is building. And then finally the word spreads. He's coming. He's really coming. He's coming like right now. He's on his way from Bethany, two miles down the road. So they took, they took these. They took branches of palm trees. Okay, they took these, these palm branches. There we go. <laughs> they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. This is verse 13. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it, as, as it is written, quoting from Zechariah 9, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So they were shouting exuberantly. This term, Hosanna, it's actually a Hebrew word, and they just brought it right into Greek and put Greek letters to the Hebrew sound. We've done the same thing into English. So that's how you would say it maybe with less of a southern accent, but, but they would say, Hosanna, okay? This is, it, it by this time just become kind of a, a, uh, an expression of praise, just exuberant praise. And it meant save us. It meant save us. This is what they're shouting. This is what they're singing, echoing Psalm 118. There, there, there's, uh, in this psalm is, is where a lot of this comes from and then tying into Zechariah chapter nine. So the crowd is super excited and they get this, 
partially right, but they get it fundamentally wrong. Now, what, what did they get right? Well, Jesus was and is a king. And he, he did, you've, you've seen those videos like, show me you're a southerner without telling me you're a southerner or tell me you're without, t-. well, tell me you're, you're a king without telling me you're a king. Tell me you're the Messiah without telling me you're the Messiah. That's what Jesus did. He was clearly and intentionally showing that he was a king and he was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah 9 that Israel's future king would come in riding on a donkey's colt. And this is also copying Solomon's entrance in the Old Testament when he was crowned king, his entrance into Jerusalem. So Jesus knew exactly what he, were do- what he was doing and the people knew exactly what he was doing. So yes, they got that part right. He was a king, but what did they get wrong? They had the right title, king, but not the right expectation for what kind of king he was going to be. They thought he was going to be a political king. So these, these palm branches, okay, these are, are probably a, a little bit smaller than the ones that are, are in Israel. There's, uh, but, but date palm trees were very, um, were very common there, okay? They were, they were everywhere. So they started tearing these off, pulling these off. And it, and it wasn't just like, well, th- these, are, these are good noisemakers, right? These don't really make any noise. But <laughs> it wasn't just like they were noisemakers at, at a football game. It wasn't like, we just need something, gra- grab these. They, they intentionally grabbed these because by this point, the palm branch had become a national symbol. So people had, had identified Israel with the palm branch. It, it, was, it was more or less uh, kind of like the, the, the eagle for us, okay? It was, it was like their national symbol. It was printed on coins that revolutionaries against Rome put, put the palm branch um, on the coins that they minted. It was basically waving around a palm branch was like waving a flag, okay? This, this was their nationalistic symbol of, of who they were as a people. And, and so understandably, they were hoping Jesus would be that Messiah king that would finally come in and do what had been done before and overthrow the Romans. But they missed it. They missed it because they thought their greatest problem was Rome. And just like today, many of us, many people around the world, they think their greatest problem is their government. They think their greatest problem is their, their president or prime minister or king some political leader, Jesus has already made clear through the Gospel of John, that's not their greatest problem and it's not our greatest problem. Our greatest problem is dying in our sins. That's our number one problem. That was their number one problem. And the solution for them was not that he would come in and be Israel's king that would finally overthrow the Romans, but that he would be the king for the entire world who would conquer sin and death and give eternal life. That's what he's been talking about a lot in John, starting back in John chapter 3, verse 16, as many of you know. So the Messiah, this whole idea, that was not just for them. Not even Passover was not just for them. It was never meant to end there, even though it started with Israel. The scope was always greater. So even in the Old Testament, look, let's look together at Zechariah 9, this, this, the, the greater quote that, that, uh, that, that the people are, are uh, that, or that John quotes here. Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10, here's what it says. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off 
the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. So what's this king going to do? This king, this Messiah king, is going to bring peace. And that's why he's coming in riding on a donkey and not on a war horse, which would have been more appropriate, more fitting for a king. He's bringing peace. And, and for who? Not just for Israel, but for the nations. From, from, from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So they had a wrong expectation of who Jesus was, but also the wrong idea of who and what he was for. So Jesus was coming not just for them. And, and the crowds had a fundamental misunderstanding. Even his disciples didn't get it, as, as John says in verse 16. Let's pick up there. His disciples, now remember, that includes John. So John and his buddies, his disciples, did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And then John goes, goes on to tell us about the crowds and the Pharisees. The crowd had been, that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you are, you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. So, so we see here in John, there's actually two crowds. There's like a crowd within a crowd. We have the Jerusalem crowd that's ready to put the crown on Jesus' head. And, and then the, the other crowd is the ones from Bethany who were there when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And, and so they're telling everybody else what they saw, what they experienced, or they're talking about Lazarus. And, and, and so th then John reports about the Pharisees, their utter frustration. is I mean, isn't that nice to read that and see how exasperated they are? Like, we just kind of get a little kick out of, out of what they say. And it's exactly what they were afraid would happen. Th this is what they knew. This is what they had told each other. This is what's going to happen. And, and they can see their power, position, their authority slipping right through their fingers at this point. So little, little did they know it was actually worse than they thought. Uh, th this final phrase of verse 19 uttered by the Pharisees, it's setting up what comes next. Yes, the whole world is going after him, and that's been God's plan from the earliest parts of the Old Testament, the earliest part of the story of the entire Bible. So this next part is not just a random thing that John throws in there for fun. This is very intentional. Here, here's our second piece. Number two, the king for the world. Verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So track what's happening here. It, it's, it says that some Greeks were there for Passover. Now, that doesn't mean that they were from Greece necessarily. It's, it's the equivalent of saying Gentiles or non-Jews. So Greek culture and language was really, really widespread at this time. And so that became kind of a, a very common general term to use uh, in, in that time. And the region that Philip was from, he very likely would have spoken Greek. And the name Philip and the name Andrew are actually Greek names. So it makes sense that these Greeks would, would go to them. And, and then I love what they asked Philip. They, they asked him this. They said, sir, we wish to see Jesus. I don't know if you know this, but um, a lot of, of what's called pulpits or, or, or these podiums 
in a lot of church buildings, especially the ones that are like big, wooden, you know, huge ones, a lot of them will have a, a little sign or a little plaque that is, you, you can't see it sitting where you are, but it would, be, it would be facing the one who's preaching. And it's a direct quote from, from this verse. And it, and it says, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. It's, it's, it's as if to remind a pastor or a preacher, say, hey, you might have a nice story or something like that, but, but we're not here for, for like, like Chris said earlier, your cult of personality, okay? We're, we're, we're not here for anything that you have to offer. We want you to offer us Jesus. We want to see Jesus. What, what a great reminder. And, and, and if you're not a Christian, especially here today, what these guys asked, that, that's our hope for you as well, that you would see Jesus. And that's, that's how we say what we're about at New Life. We, we say we're, that, that our mission, our purpose, what we're about is helping people to find and follow Jesus. That's what we want to do for you. We want to do what Philip and Andrew did, point you to him as the one that you can have eternal life in him. And he's not just the king of the world. He's the king, as we see in here, he's the king for the world, and that includes you. And our greatest hope is that you would find him as your king and that you would see that that is good, good news, as we'll see as we continue with the story. So we have here these, these Gentiles at Passover. So remember, this was the, the most Jewish festival of them all, but, but they're fascinated, they're curious, and they want to go see Jesus. And John has just quoted the Pharisees saying, the whole world has gone after him. And, and that's, that's exactly right, okay? It's, it's all the Jewish nations getting excited, and then even the Gentiles are excited. And, and I would think, I don't know about you, I would think that Jesus' response would, would be something like this, that, that he would respond with, this is what I've been talking about, guys. I've, I've been telling you that my mission is for the whole world. That's what the Old Testament made clear about the Messiah. Those Gentiles, I want to talk to them. Bring them here to me. But that's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say anything like that. He says in verse 23, here's his response. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, over and over in the Gospel of John, Jesus has said, my hour has not yet come. Like, like when Mary, his mom, came to him at the wedding feast and said, can you do something about the wine? There's a problem. And he's saying, my hour has not yet come. So over and over in John, but this time it's different. This time he says, my hour has come. The hour has come. The time is now. And see the connection here. The Gentiles coming to Jesus, that's the trigger for him saying in this verse, now the hour has come. This is for the whole world. I am for the whole world. So the hour has come. The hour has come for what? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now this word glorified, like, like lifted up later in the passage, it, this, this refers back to Isaiah 52 and 53, the death of the suffering servant that Isaiah prophesies about the Messiah. So Jesus is identifying him, uh, identifying him himself with the servant who Isaiah talked about in his prophecy. And so what will be the result of that? Verse 24, truly, truly, Jesus is really emphasizing this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So here's our, our third piece, the king's paradox. Jesus is referring to his coming death on the cross, days away. And he states, 
what, what might be the greatest paradox in his life and in his ministry, and it's the truth he extends to those who would follow him. Now, he's speaking to an agricultural community. They get this. If, if, a, if a grain of wheat, which I, I've got a, a, a grain of wheat right here, okay? It's really tiny, right? You can hardly see it. Anybody see that? Barely, okay. So if a grain of wheat, if it remains by itself, what's going to happen? Nothing. Right, it, it, it's just gonna it's it's gonna die and rot and it's and it's good for nothing, right? It might be good for for compost, right? That's that's about it, unless unless it dies to itself, it gets planted in the right soil and it will die, but then new life can sprout from it. So Jesus is talking about his own life that that obedience to the Father's will this would cost him his life, but he knew that his death would produce much fruit. Life would come to many through his death. And then Jesus extends this paradox, this truth, beyond himself to his disciples. Verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So just like a, a little grain of wheat, if we just, just leave it right here on the podium, it, it's if we view our lives like that and we just, just leave it right here on the table, it's not going to last long. We won't have anything to show for it. And then we'll ultimately lose whatever we thought we did have in the first place. But don't miss that key little phrase that, that, that Jesus says. He says, whoever hates his life in this world, his life in this world, and then what's the rest, will keep it for eternal life. So question for us, does Jesus want you to lose your life? No, he does not. He wants you to keep it for eternal life. So there's a sense in which, yes, he wants you to lose your life in this world. He wants you to hate that life by comparison, but he wants you to keep your life for eternity. It's been said that there is no ultimate dying to self. There's no ultimate self-denial in following Jesus. So yes, Jesus wants you to deny yourself, but he wants you to deny yourself garbage so you can have gold, right? He wants you to, to deny yourself uh, temporary, finite things for everlasting, ultimate things, invaluable things. Now, one author put it this way, to love your life means to delight in your life in this world more than in God. By contrast, to hate your life in this world means to think so little of your life and so much of God that you're willing to sacrifice it all for God. Somebody else said it this way, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them garbage in order that I may gain Christ. It's Paul in Philippians 3. So it's a paradox. Just like the, the grain of wheat, if, if Jesus dies, he bears much fruit. So if you're a Christian today, you are part of that fruit that his life bore out and that his death bore out. And the paradox for us is that if we love our life, we're going to lose it. But if we hate our life in this world, 
will keep it for eternal life. And look, that, that message about losing our lives and dying to ourselves, it, it, it's a hard message. We don't want to make it sound like it's not a hard message. And it's so out of step with every message that we hear day in and day out in our world, isn't it? I mean, every song, every advertisement, every form of media, all we hear, it's, it's all about loving your life and expressing yourself, exalting yourself, self-serving. In other words, it's saying what our world is telling us is be your own king, right? Be the own, your, your own king of your own life and do what you want and be about yourself. And Jesus is saying to us, no. He's saying, no, there, there is a better way. It's not an easy way, but it leads to life. And he has done everything that is necessary for us to get there. But we have to come to him as king. We have to come to him as king. So ask yourself, have you given up your own way? Have you set aside a self-centered existence? And have you made God's agenda your agenda? Have you made Jesus' priorities your priorities? And are you a servant of him, no matter what that means for your life? Well, if you are, and if I am, here's what Jesus says about you and about me. Verse 26. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Did you see that? If you serve Jesus, the Father will honor you. What could be greater than being honored by the the sovereign creator of the universe who also, if you're in Christ, is your eternal, perfect Father? What could be better than that? You serve Jesus, you be honored by the Father. Now look, the, as we said, the Christian life is hard. We don't want to make it sound like it's a cakewalk. It, it, it's hard. But here's the thing. We lose our lives in this world. We keep our lives for eternity. And in in it's real life, true life. We get to be with Jesus in his glory, in his kingdom, and we'll be honored by the Father. That's a trade. I don't know about you. That's a trade that I'll take. And it is hard, but it's worth it. And he, he is worth it. That leads us to the very last piece, the king's purpose. Verse 27, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. What purpose? Father, glorify your name. That's why Jesus was actively, intentionally moving toward his own death. It was about his father's name and his father's glory more than it was about anything else. And not just that his name would be known and worshipped by the Jewish nation at Passover, but so he would be known and loved and worshipped by Gentiles too, all the nations, all the peoples. And so we're part of that all-nations fruit, those of us in this room who know Christ, that resulted from his death, so that we would worship the one true God. We'd worship with Jews and with Greeks and with Egyptians and people from Thailand and from Costa Rica and from Czech Republic and Malawi and every people on the face of the earth, that we would enter glorifying God because of what Jesus has done and because of who 
God is. That was the king's purpose. That's why he intentionally went to Jerusalem knowing, knowing that he would suffer and die for the sins of the world, your sins, my sins, their sins. Nothing that he deserved, everything that we deserved, he did it for us and he did it for the Father's name to be glorified. He's the king, not just of the world, but for the world, and he gave his life to glorify the Father. This is obviously not the end of the story. We're moving towards that this weekend, so we're going to put a pin in it right here, and we're going to send out, if you're on our email list, if you're not, you can just, just, just shoot us an email or talk to us afterwards. We'll make sure you get this. We're going to send out a guide where you can walk with Jesus from this point, right where he says, it's about his Father's name, walk with him all through this week, leading up to Good Friday and next Sunday. And so you can... Read on Monday what Jesus did on Monday. Read on Tuesday what Jesus said on Tuesday and walk with him through his final week. So if you get the weekly email, you'll receive that guide. But two things as we close today. Let me speak to those of you who are, are not yet believers and those of us who, who are. So if you're, if you're not a believer in Jesus or, or, or maybe you're not sure, you don't know, here's what we want to do today. We, we just want to do like Philip and Andrew. We want to point you to him as the king. And he can be your king. He can give you this life he's talking about, this eternal life with him. And if you will come to him, then he will have you. He will accept you. He will receive you gladly, joyfully. He would love to do that if you will believe in him. That's our greatest hope for you, and, and we would love to help you if you'd like to take that step. If you're if you are a believer in Jesus, if you're if you're here with us, if you're online, here's our encouragement to you. Keep believing in him. Keep trusting him. Keep serving him as your king. Every day die to your own life, your priorities, your agenda, your self-centered purpose and serve him. Make his priorities your own. Make his agenda, his purpose your own. Picking up all those themes from 1 John, the, the, the letter that John wrote to the people who would have heard his gospel about love and about faith and about obedience. Jesus is the king of the world and he's the king for the world and he gave his life to glorify the Father and he invites us to serve him and to do the same. And it's hard, but it's worth it and he's worthy of it. So let's pray together as we close. Pray with me if you would. Heavenly Father, we, um, we come to you just, just in, in, in the words of, of 1 John that we looked at a few weeks ago that, that we love because you loved us first. We thank you so much for loving us, for sending your son for us and for the entire world. And we ask for, for those of us who know you that, that you would just continually empower us with that love to love others and to serve, to serve Christ as our King. So we thank you for these words that, that show us who he is and what he is and what he is for us. And for those of us who, who are on that journey or who have not come yet to believe in him, we just ask that you would, would make that life real and tangible for each of us, that we would pursue that with our whole hearts, that we pursue you with our whole hearts. We thank you for, the, for sending your son and for the opportunity that we have to, to read his words, to read these stories, and to walk with him as he goes to the cross. We pray in his name.